Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Benedict. Yeah. Hello. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. How's things? Yes, I'm talking to Benedict Evans from A16Z otherwise known as Andreessen Horowitz, and you are a partner there. So, Benedict, yes. I've been following your blog since before you even joined Andreessen Horowitz. What is your career before that, and what are the areas of coverage that you cover before, as of then and now? So, I left university and went into investment banking and became an equity analyst on the south side, covering mobile operations. So I wrote research, got models, made recommendations about mobile telecom stocks from sort of 2000 to 2005, back when mobile operators were the kind of sexy, exciting, disruptive growth companies. After that, I went to work in industry. So I went and worked at Strategy at Orange and Channel 4 and NBC Universal and worked at for a um, uh, strategy consultancy. And then I joined Andreessen Horowitz about 18 months ago, beginning of 2014. And you have been always been covering mobile and also on some of the major topic investments in Andreessen Horowitz. I mean, wearables, for example, right? Mm. Mobile became the thing, has become the thing, but that's a little bit like saying digital has become the thing now. That is to say, sort of most people have now worked out that Smartphones have replaced PCs or are replacing PCs as the dominant computing platform, both for consumer and for enterprise and for the more broader questions in supply chain and ecosystem. And the question is, well, what happens as a result of that? And there's lots of sort of things that flow, questions that flow out of that from sort of questions of, you know, how does search discovery and e-commerce and customer acquisition work to, you know, all of the products that are enabled by smartphones, whether that's cars or wearables or connected home or things of things and, and so on. I mean, I suppose the way I see it is that there's a sort of solar system in which the smartphone is the sun and then everything else orbits around it. That comes to the question of this article that you have written about new questions in mobile early this year, where you mentioned that iOS and Android have already won the market. And I think the first question I sort of wanted is that you've been to the Apple WWDC and also Google I.O. 2015. And I particularly on the question on shifting layers of interaction. So, for example, now you have native level actions such as Google Now on tap, where you versus the app level where it's Facebook and WeChat. So does Google's Now on tap is actually a kind of new layer of interaction for a post-page rank error, in your view? Yeah, exactly. Well, so I think there's, there's several things going, that are going on here. The first is, and the most basic issue, is that for 20 years, the, the mainstream experience of the internet was a web browser and a mouse and a keyboard. And there were a few other things going on, and obviously there was email that may or not, may not have been in a browser, and there was Skype and Spotify and so on. But for most people, for most of the time, the internet meant the web, and the web meant a PC and a, browser and a, mouse, and a web browser and a mouse and a keyboard. And as you go to smartphones, that model just explodes into lots of different parts. And so all of that content got unbundled from the web browser into lots of different things. And the first thing it got unbundled into is standalone applications, but that's not the only thing. And what Apple and Google are both doing, um, so let me let me take it back, that the fundamental change is that it used to be that the web browser was the platform and the PC was just kind of a commodity that delivered the web browser, at least as far as the internet is concerned. I mean, you did other things on the PC, but for the internet, the PC wasn't doing anything, it was just the web browser. And on the smartphone, it's the whole smartphone that's used first. And so, you know, you have a camera, most obviously, 
and you have all sorts of APIs and integrations and tools within the operating system itself, whether that's the push notifications or something like Google Now or Siri or, you know, more basic things like maps and camera location. And so the point is that the, you've gone from this sort of monolith of the browser to lots of different layers and sort of ways and places that people interact at different levels of the operating system. Of course, one of those is Facebook trying to rebundle everything up into Facebook and rebundle everything into Messenger app. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, even more within your part of the world, WeChat basically building kind of its own runtime inside of a messaging application. And so that's kind of moving interaction models up the stack so that, you know, theoretically you spend all your time inside Facebook or you spend all your time inside WeChat and you're not doing stuff on, on the smartphone itself. Meanwhile, what Apple and Google are doing is sort of relocating things that you might have done on the web or might have done in a third-party app one layer down in the operating system, in the stack, down into the operating system itself. For Apple, you have what they call Siri, but Siri is no longer just about voice. It's this whole sort of proactive searching concept that, you know, that I starts to make know where you are and make suggestions. And that's sort of distributed all over the system. So, you know, I get a call from you and it says that might be Bernard because I got an email from you yesterday which had that phone number in it. Uh-huh. Um, and whereas for Google, it tends to cut Google sort of concentrating all of that stuff in one place inside Google now and now on tap, which again, it's partly real estate. It's partly unbundling what's going on inside apps. But it's, I think the underlying point is the smart PC, let me, let me rephrase this. In the PC era, the PC was not the platform, which is a kind of a funny thing to say. But for the internet, the PC was not the platform, it was the web browser that was the platform. And the web browser was this sort of neutral, it was a neutral intermediary that didn't kind of redirect how you might do things in different ways or privilege one kind of service over another. And on the smartphone, it's not the browser that's the runtime, it's a smartphone that's the platform. And you've got at least two runtimes, that's say the web and apps, and probably more in the future. And secondly, it's not neutral because you have Apple and Google you know, making conscious decisions about what's going to happen and what are going to be the right way of defining things in the future. And so, just to sort of conclude, you said, if I sort of, I wrote that Apple and the smartphone war, the platform war is over, or the first phase of the war is over, and Apple and Google both won. But I also said that nothing's settled. Mm. It's not remotely clear what you're going to be doing on your smartphone in five years' time. I could foresee a situation where in Google's now on tap is that you basically provides contextual actions so people could actually bid cost per actions on Google now on tap. So does that is that equivalent to something like a page rank? And what is the importance of Android for Google's future? Is it going to be higher than it used to before because there's such deep integration into the Android stuff? Well, I think that's, that's kind of two very different questions. Mm. I think what Google is doing with now, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. So, so Apple had this thing called Siri, which was voice recognition. But now they're using Siri to describe stuff that actually isn't voice recognition at all, like it suggests what apps you might want to use or what people you might want to call. And that's not without you speaking to it at all. And it's still calling that Siri. And Google had this thing called Now, which took all of the stuff that Google had learned by watching you and made unprompted suggestions. And now they're using, but then now on tap doesn't do that at all. With now on tap, you say, look at this web page and tell me something about it. Like, tell me where this, show me a map of this. 
Mm. So, you know, so classic, classic now on tap use case would be you're looking at a restaurant web page and the address is on the page and you say, Google now, tell them to send me a map to that address. And Google now comes up, looks at the web page, sees there's an address there, works out you're asking for an address, shows you the address, shows you a map. And so that's not proactive at all. <laughs> See what I mean? So they're both mm, yeah, kind of, right. they're kind of splitting it apart. So that's one, one answer. I think the point of all of this, and there's, there's lots of different things going on. I think one of the underlying and interesting strands here is an attempt to remove, is attempts to remove friction. So another way of thinking about that is there's an old saying in computer science that a computer should never ask a question it should know the answer to. And I mean, if you think back to showing your mother how to use a computer and showing her things like copy paste and or save as and the enormous amounts of time that those very basic UI enhancements saved, I think what Apple and Google are poking around at now is sort of a similar thing. Like, why should I have to copy that address in the web browser and then paste it in Google Maps? The phone should not be able to tell that that's a map, that that's an address. The phone should be able, to, if, I, I'll, if I'm listening to a track and I say, who's singing? The phone should be able to work out what I'm asking and identify the track. And both Apple and Google kind of pushing away at this. They're always kind of climbing the mountain from different sides because they're doing it in a very different way. But they're both kind of poking at that question of, well, why should I have to tell the computer that what I want? It should be able to work out what I want at this point. I think the watch is an interesting layer of that as well. How do you work out what smartwatches in general? How do you work out what to show or what would be useful at that moment rather than giving somebody, you know, an entire file system? And then you ask the second question, you know, but that's, that's one whole strand which comes out of this question of, you know, smartphone as a platform. Correct. The question of, the question of Android is an, is an interesting and complex one for Google. Obviously, in, in your part of the world, you're kind of, you're very conscious of the difference between Android overall and Google's version of Android or what one could call open Android and closed Android. I think the way that I come at that question is to say that I think Android is really a tactic rather than a strategy for Google. That is to say, I think the fundamental objective for Google is that Google is a machine learning engine that's been stuffed with data for 50 years. And everything that Google does is about reach for that engine. Either reach to get data in or reach to surface data out in various applications. And Gmail is an application, Maps is an application, Ads is an application. Web search is an application. Now is an application. But they're all things that plug on to an underlying, you know, in a very kind of raw, high-level sense, an understanding of machine learning, an understanding of managing vast amounts of data of producing useful information out of that. And Android is one aspect of that. Yeah, I think there's, sort of, there's probably three fundamental purposes for Android. The first one was to accelerate the adoption of the mobile internet which would mean more people online and more people online more of the time, just two separate points, by providing a good operating system, which wasn't really there at the time. I mean, if you recall the situation in 2007, 2008, there was iOS and then there was crap. Um, or there was stuff that was great feature phones, but not the smartphones. And it, obviously that's been a huge and unambiguous success. It's probably one and a half billion, maybe more, uh, Android phones in, in use today. And then the second point, which is related to this, is to make sure that nobody else would lock you out that not, well, obviously when it was conceived, that here was actually Microsoft, that people, that people wouldn't be able to lock people out of this mobile world. In that, also, it's been hugely successful. I mean, obviously, you can see with the stuff that Apple is doing now, the reasons why Google would have been concerned. But in a sense, Android needs Apple honest. And then there's a sort of a third point, which is that Android is also a data collection platform. 
That is to say, it knows who you are and where you are and where you go. And it knows, you know, if you're standing in the street and you search for a restaurant, it knows that it's 8 o'clock at night and you're on the street with lots of restaurants. I mean, the kind of the canonical example is, you know, if you fill out your phone and search for Taj Mahal, if you are at home in, you know, if you're in Agra, then you're going to get, it's going to show you one thing. If you are at home in London, it's going to say, show you a second thing. If you are in an area with lots of Indian restaurants, it's going to show you a third thing. And that kind of knowledge and understanding of meaning and context of where you are and where you went after that search and what searching other people did in the same place and where they went, that's the kind of a big part of the value of Android for Google. And so to the extent that Google doesn't control Android, that's a problem because it starts to lose some of those pieces of information. But it's not clear yet whether, how, you know, how far Google will lose control of Android. Um, I mean, we're investors in a company called Cyanogen, mm. which provides platform for people to customize Android to their own purposes. But it, even that doesn't tell you that that's a way of removing control of Google of Android from Google. It's just a way of, you know, it's almost an intermediary layer for people helping people work with Android. But of course, one could also play devil's advocate and say that maybe in five years' time, we won't be using Android phones, we'll be using Chrome phones with Android as a sort of legacy run chart. So, you know, it again comes back to the point I made earlier about how unsettled that is. Um, we also, of course, there's another layer of unsettled in Android in that we don't know who the manufacturers are going to be. You know, where is it, what's going to happen to HTC? How big is Xiaomi going to get? You know, where will Samsung stabilize? And you know, all those kinds of questions. That comes to my next point, which is the where the so-called open and closed Android is. I mean, I guess maybe I will start from Asia first because so far non-Google AOSP only works in China because of government intervention, because of non-Google service. And I think Xiaomi, for example, with MIUI and the Color OS, which is used by Oppo, they are trying to expand out to the other markets. And I think Cyanogen, which is a company you invested, has also now doing partnerships. So in your view, how will a non-Google AOSP like Cyanogen or even the MIUI would be able to branch out into a market without Google services? I mean, Nokia X tried to do that but couldn't gain traction in China, and similarly in India so, as well. Yeah, so there's several answers here. The first is that, incidentally, Cyanogen does not remove Google services. So you can buy a Cyanogen phone that has all Google services. It's fully compliant. Um, it, what it does is it introduces the optionality and introduces choices to the device manufacturer and to the user around what services you want to see you want them from. I think there's a set of questions here around whether who wants to remove Google services and why, yeah. and whether that results in a commercially viable product. I think at a high level, and again, there's a couple of things to say here. The first is, at a high level, the number of people who cannot live without Google services, if you live in the tech industry, you think that everyone lives in Gmail and all Google services and a phone without Google services is garbage. If you step outside that bubble for a little bit, you see that even for something like Maps, that's not really true. So we saw, we heard from Google that the average email user gets five emails a day, and most of those are commercial. And we heard from Apple that, you know, by and from various in various ways, that there are sort of there are something like and very like from EE and from various other sources. We know we can get a sense that there are something like 450 million iPhones on Earth, and only about a quarter of those have got Google Maps on them. So the sort of this idea that somehow Google services are utterly indispensable and a product is unsaleable without them is slightly problematic. I think the crucial thing, actually, 
is both first access to things like YouTube, which you can argue about how you get access to that. Secondly, having a good app store. Amazon has tried and failed, I think, or failed so far to create a viable alternative to the Android app store on its Fire platform. Obviously, in China, because Google is absent, you've got a dozen app stores or 500 app stores, depending on who, probably three or four that really matter. Outside China, that would be quite a big gap of selling a device without Google, is how would you get the apps? How would you get the app store? But then the question is, you know, what is it that the manufacturer is really trying to do? And so I would pair, so let's sort of come at this from the other side. One of the interesting companies I saw in Barcelona at the Nobel World Congress, which is the big annual trade fair, was a French company called Wico. And on the back of it, which makes Android phones, or rather sells Android phones, on the back of every phone it says, designed in France, assembled in China. Policy <laughs> okay. And somebody from one of the big old line handset manufacturers said, yeah, when they say that, what they mean is they went to box one and they said, we'll have another seven, another 15, please. <laughs> and but what they're doing is they're doing marketing, sales, marketing, distribution. They're getting their phones made. They're getting, I mean, they look, they're kind of all in the same color and they look a little bit distinctive. They're getting an Android phone made in Shenzhen and they have something like 10 to 15%, maybe 20% of the French handset market. And then they told nothing two years ago. And there are, and obviously in India you have Carbon and Micromax and a couple of others. And then you have lots, and there's Blue in Latin America and there's Cherry Mobile in the Philippines. And there's probably two or three dozen companies. All of, and all, what they're all doing is they're using the scale of the Shenzhen ecosystem as a substitute for having their own manufacturing. And then they're doing branding, distribution, marketing in a selected market. That, in a sense, is what Xiaomi is. It's using the scale of the Shenzhen manufacturing ecosystem and it's doing branding, distribution, and marketing. And it doesn't have, you know, enormous plants producing tens of millions of phones all the time. And so I think the question for Android is, where do the scale effects sit? You know, how far, can, how big can you get without your own plant? You know, how big can Xiaomi get? How, what point do you start running into problems not actually making its own devices and yet not being Apple? And so that's kind of like, to me, that's like the base level question. And then you have another question, which is, is it possible to create sustainable differentiation by having your own software on top of that, your own interface on top of Android, with or without Google services, which I think is like, it's like, you know, if you hate Google and you think that there's, if you're, if you spend all your time thinking about like the strategic feature of the industry, then you think, well, maybe there'll be these devices like Google services. And even again, trying to sell a phone in France, not having Google services is not anywhere near your top of list of priorities. Like, why would I take them out? The interesting thing that Xiaomi has obviously done in a sense is created some feeling that actually Xiaomi software is different and you get a better user experience. But it's not clear to me that they've actually done anything that can't be copied, that they've actually got some sort of sustainable differentiation as opposed to them just working it out and lots of people copying. And clearly, there are lots of companies, that are like, there are like five, ten companies in China that are trying to copy what Xiaomi's done. And it's not yet clear whether that's impossible. And it's also not yet clear how much is about their software story. Is Wiko going to be the Xiaomi of France? without actually having very different Android software, just by having that brand distribution marketing. And there'll be one in Germany and one in Spain and one in Italy and one in Brazil and you know, two in Brazil and four in India and so on. And yes, the software is a bit different, but is that what matters? Or is it the brand and distribution? I mean, as I said, this whole area is just totally, totally wide open. At the moment. So I have this question. So I'm actually uh, been observing Xiaomi outside China and inside China. So in <laughs> Xiaomi's approach in India, 
is that they run on Google Play services. That means they run stock Android. But what they have yes. been doing is that well, they, no, so they don't. No, they don't. They don't run stock Android. What they do is the, they run Xiaomi. Yeah, they but run. they have the Google services yeah. present on that. Correct. And what came upon what seems to be happening, and from a couple of my friends from India, is that they observed that Xiaomi is trying to localize certain India services. They are trying to build on top of that the basic services for for Indian, for example, like money lending. You know, some of these services are very similar to how they have sort of customized for WeChat. So they might. Yes. So do you see such a strategy will work out even for art like Cyanogen if they go out to the emerging markets? I think the question here is the problem as a handset maker or for that matter as a mobile operator in trying to create your own content services is that your all your own applications mm. is that you're competing with the entire internet. So there's like there's a first order question which is is your stuff any good? You are a Japanese, Chinese, South Korean engineering company, are you going to be good at making a great photo sharing app? And the answer is almost certainly no. And even if your app is good, it's still competing with fifty other great apps. So even if it's great, it's still, you know, you don't actually have that structural advantage. You know, no one cares that it's from Xiaomi. No one cares that it's from AT&T. No one cares that it's from smartphone. And I think the innovation, the interesting innovation of Xiaomi was that instead of trying to do that, they created this new interface layer. So it's not that they've got a better movie service or a better photo app or a better note-taking app or a better address book or something. It's that the whole phone is being improved and then you can go off and install Instagram or whatever you want on top of it. And so I think that's the differentiation is not the content. And I would really struggle to to think that Xiaomi is going to produce is going to have better app around, you know, ABC mm. um ABCD, um, you know, what is it? Astrology for astrology for India, for astrology, example, Bollywood. Yeah. yeah, for India. Okay, okay. Yeah. Astrology, um, astrology, Bollywood, cricket, divination. People talk about. I struggle to imagine that they're going to have you're going to have better stuff on your Xiaomi phone than you would have on your Microsoft phone or on any other phone because they're competing against all the, the Indian entrepreneurial world. Um, but I'm also not sure how much that matters. I think I feel like it's a whole lot of conversation. But what's happened in content, and particularly what's happened in music, for example is that music went from being this key strategic lever that will stop you changing your device to being a checkbox commodity that was on every device. Mm. And that's obviously what happened with all of the internet as well. And of course, that's what Apple is trying to reverse with Apple Music. They're trying to turn it back into a point of differentiation. But I really struggle to see content as, as, a, mm. as a strategic lever here. I mean, it's more like something you just have to have. I saw wanted to sort of move away and sort of talk about wearables given uh, Apple, Apple Watch entry into the market. I mean... Do you see Apple Watch being an intermediate option until something like the Project Project Jackhut, which is the one, uh, the Google project about, you know, software merging with clothes happening? Because the input layer is different. I think, so we're investors in a company called Magic Leap, mm. which does basically augmented reality. So you wear what look like a pair of sunglasses and you see content, you see images led onto the real world in such that it almost looks as if it's there. You know, it almost looks like there really is a robot walking around on that table. Mm. And obviously Microsoft has HoloLens and Google um, and, uh, Google has Google Glass, which is kind of different. It wasn't trying to do augmented reality. Those technologies are some time away from being mainstream mass market replacements for a mobile phone. Mm. 
to put it mildly. Some of them are extremely exciting. They're not going to be replaced your phone next year. So that's one answer. Second, Raya, you know, on a 10-year view, will everything changes. You know, if you think what devices we were using 10 years ago, mm. or rather more accurate, if you think about what devices we were using in 1997 and compared them to the iPhone in 2000. Yeah. Um, so obviously, the, the curve was steeper then. But, you know, on a 10-year view, who knows? You know, stuff will change a lot. Uh, imminently, I think the, the smartwatch is the right form factor and technology had to have as a supplement to your smartphone. I think the technology to have something on your face that's in your vision is not yet at a stage where it is something that every normal people would wear all the time every day without it. Yeah, okay. Whatever we would be using in a decade, we probably would come back and think, oh, actually smartphone was an intermediate option anyway. Like what, we, what happened to the PCs, I mean, 10 years ago, right? Yeah, I mean, I could certainly imagine a scenario in 10 years' time in which you could wear a pair of glasses and it would that would be your display. And then you would have a, a box the size of a smartphone in your pocket. Quite what the input technology would be beyond speech is a question. You know, maybe it's resolvable, maybe it isn't. And, that might, and as a result, that might be, for example, the equivalent of the games console. It might be the specialized interface rather than the general purpose interface you have with you all the time. But, you know, it's really hard to, to forecast how that stuff is going to develop. Just, you know, it would have been hard to sit down in 2000 and forecast the iPhone. Um, <laughs> or exactly how the iPhone would work. I mean, there's another, there's a sort of second order point, which is sort of Carl Sagan said that, you know, a good science fiction story doesn't forecast automobiles, it forecasts traffic jams. <laughs> and that's actually the kind of the interesting problem. You know, it's kind of easy to say at some point in the future, we will have some way of layering a display onto the real world, whether it's contact lens or glasses or whatever it is. Okay, that's, okay that I can see. The question is, well, fine, what do you do with that? How do you interact with that? But this is, all, as I said, this is a decade. This is five to ten years away. Um, right now, the watch is the model that works as a supplement to the smartphone. Mm, that's cool. To the extent that you think it works. That's right. So, I mean, I will look out for all these technologies. But I like the part about mobile is eating the world. And I've been thinking a lot about the next 1 billion. Does the ability to reach the first 1 billion, which is the developed markets and maybe some emerging markets via mobile, will be the same in reaching the next, the new emerging markets for the next 2 billion? I mean, I'm talking about the BRIC countries, uh, you know, maybe the third tier, fourth tier cities, or maybe Latin Americas or Middle East and North Africas. Yes. Yeah, I mean, so we have there's probably two billion smartphones on Earth today, mm. more or less. So maybe over a bit over a billion Android, something like half a Google Android, something like half a billion Android in China, and something like four or five hundred million iPhones. So you know, good enough for government work. Say two billion. There are depending on your estimate, probably somewhere between 4 and 5 billion people on Earth who have a mobile phone today. GSMA has an estimate of 3.8, which I think is too low. There's something like 7 billion SIMs on Earth, which there's a massive amount of duplication and people who have more than one. So, you know, pick a number. Say there's 5, you know, there's 5 billion adults on Earth. You know, so whether it's four-fifths of all adults on Earth or plus in children, although it's close to 100%, you know, we're clearly getting to the point now that every every single economically active adult on Earth 
That is to say, everybody on Earth who is not a hunter-gatherer, who does not participate in the economy at all, is going to have a phone. You know, unless you are truly in a, you know, genuinely desperate kind of destitute refugee situation, you will have a phone. Or someone in your family will have a phone. Yeah. Um, and that's really the first thing that's, that's the first time that that's happened to the technology industry. And I, even now, I say this on Twitter, and I get people are kind of attacking me as, because they think I'm some sort of lunatic Silicon Valley, mm. utopian optimist. And it's like, we're already there. It's already happened. You know, we could have had that argument 10 years ago, but that argument is over because we're there now. You know, Digicel is connecting up the highlands of Papua New Guinea and, you know, people in villages in the highlands of Papua New Guinea who regard phones as things that you stick through your nose rather than give to your dog have got phones. Mm. So we've done that's happened. And that will cycle through into ARM-based, Unix-based, probably Android-based devices in the next five to two, three, four, five years. Yeah. Um, hmm. And then you get into questions like, well, okay, they've got GSM. Do they have 3G or 4G? What does that 4G cost? What does it cost to serve them? Because just because somebody's willing to spend $10 on a phone doesn't really mean you can give them 5 gig a day to a month for 50 cents. What are they spending to charge their phones? A lot of people in emerging markets have to pay somebody who owns power, who has access to a generator, to charge their phone. So they might be spending as much charging their phone as they are on connectivity. What kind of services do they want? Um, how do they use those devices? <laughs> so you have, you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, there will be 5 billion smartphones on Earth at some point in the next five years. But those aren't, they're not all going to be the same. They're not all going to be streaming five hours of video every week and posting quick selfies to Instagram. You know, and effectively, it will just be the whole of humanity will have these things and they'll use them differently. And some of them have got a lot more money than others. I mean, I think the kind of my, my Occam's razor for all of this is that the amount of money that people have varies hugely, that their interests very rather less. I mean, you know, we come back to the, you know, the, 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 the ABCD in India of astrology, Bollywood, cricket, and, and, and divination. The people want the stuff they want to perform, and they're interested in the stuff they're interested for. And so you shouldn't regard this as a charity project. You shouldn't sit down there and say, well, they want crop reports, and they want to know about, you know, medical stuff, and they want to know about education. Yes, of course they will. They want to know about that. But, you know, they want to know about music and, you know, pop stars, normal, normal human mm-hmm. stuff as well. What would be the kind of business models or interaction layers where Google, Facebook, or Twitter cannot reach these markets. I mean, I really recall a couple of tweets you talk about the next one billion have very different ways of engaging them. I mean, um, some people brought up, like, for example, the emerging markets, for example, in China, they don't go by free by advertising model. That doesn't work. You have to use transactions to drive revenue. For example, Tencent with QQ and WeChat, which totally doesn't run on the advertising model that's in the first in developed countries. I think there's a sort of a basic issue here, mm. which is that you know how much money is there in advertising? There's a sort of you know if you are living in a fishing village in Myanmar mm. or Papua New Guinea, the amount of money that somebody is willing to spend in order to reach you as with an advertisement is very small. It may well be zero, but it's certainly very, very, very small. And bear in mind that Facebook itself makes, I think, something like five dollars an active user a year in ad revenue, and that is more or less based on you know US, US, and Western European users. Somebody who is living on five dollars a day is not worth very much to an advertiser, and therefore, and that doesn't change. It's not like well, suddenly you connect them to the internet, and then it's worth way more to advertise. It's not. It's they haven't got so much money. And so the amount of money that you can make from 
providing ad inventory for those people is very low. And you already see that in China and India, and you'll see it even more if we connect more and more people. The question of what, well, then the, the question is, but on the other hand, you know, you've got you no know, marginal cost to, to serve these people. So what business models you would provide just requires a complete other level of, of, of innovation. I mean, since, uh, one of my sort of, sort of catchphrases is this is technology sort of outgrowing the tech industry in that, you know, if you are, how can I put it, if you are Procter & Gamble and you're selling soap in rural India, you, the way that you think about that, your business model, your distribution, what the product looks like, is just completely different from if you're selling it in Wisconsin. And that's just fine. That's just how the world is. And the internet, because it kind of grew up, in, and indeed the tech industry, for a long time, was just middle-class families and big corporations. It was just, you know, rich people in rich countries. And so it all kind of looked the same. And as technology sort of expands out to cover everybody, it stops looking the same anymore. And that's just kind of a normal part of its maturing. And you will arrive at a point where there are people doing stuff in New Guinea or people doing stuff in Kenya or people doing stuff in Paraguay. It doesn't look much like what people do in Singapore or London any more than retail looks like that or banking looks like that. It's just different. That difference would actually spur more innovation and probably there will be a very different set of business models for the next billion. Yes, I think you know there will be more there will be more business models and there will be more you know, you will see the same variation in internet business models that you see in business models in the real world. Retail in Kenya does not look like retail in Singapore or Kansas. Yeah. The internet won't look like it either. So wouldn't you think that something like Coca-Cola's strategy to reach emerging markets is very unique because it's able to penetrate across a lot of markets? You know the story of how Coca-Cola managed to basically seep their brand into even like places like in Indonesia by giving the fridge, but they are selling the Coke to micro-businesses, yes. basically. Yes, exactly. That kind of innovation. I mean, the other story that you hear is marketing for mobile operators in Africa. What you do is you choose a color that's going to be your brand color, and then you give people free paint. So, you know, your corner store, you want some paint? Well, MCN will give you orange paint or orangey yellow paints. So you paint your store. It's a nice new yeah, nice new color. And that's that's mark that color is all over Uganda or whatever country they're trying to mark. So yeah, you know, innovation and local conditions. Mm. So I come to the kind of the last part of it is two things. One on the App Store metrics and the, the other one was on an article that you wrote recently on search discovery and marketing. I only have two questions for that, but I'll start with the App Store metrics because you wrote about the lack of metrics so I want to sort of ask you a question is what are the metrics that you really would like the app stores to provide beyond just downloads and payouts? I mean, if you were given the choice to put a metrics in front of Apple and Google, what would you want them to give you insight? So, well, you know, there, I used to be a telecoms analyst and mm. the mobile operators would produce basically every operating metric you would want mm. every quarter for every country that they operated in. Mm. So, you know, I can get, I can do, Vodafone puts up a spreadsheet every quarter of what the SMS is per user in every country they operate in and what the voice limits are, mm. what the data spending are per country. Mm. It's always struck me as very funny that the tech industry talks so much about openness and is actually much more sensitive about this stuff. <laughs> it's also very funny, incidentally. It's also very funny that Google, sorry, that Apple has this reputation for being secretive because it's actually by far the most open company in the tech industry about what they're actually, you know, about their financial metrics. And, Hmm. You know, if you listen to the conference call, people ask him for questions and he answers them. 
more or less. You can tell them whether they're going to make a TV, but any other guys can go on. What are the metrics? Well, basically, we're kind of operating in a, in a fog. We know how many handsets Apple sells. I don't know. We don't know how many are in use. We don't know how many active users of iOS users there are. We can make some relatively sort of solid guesses, but we don't know. Mm. We have no, we don't know at all how many Android, um, Google Android users there are. The last time Google gave a statistic was a year ago. They said over a billion, and they didn't give any numbers, or almost no numbers for the next year, and then at I.O. this year, they said over a billion. Well, fine, what was that? And so you have to sort of work it out yourself, going country by country and getting a thousand different bits of data and kind of plug kind of plug together and get to a sort of approximate number. Do what I said earlier, I think there's about two billion smartphones on Earth, but I don't have, the, you know, they add the Apple number there, and the Chinese number are more followers than the Google number. <laughs> So that's like your starting point. You don't really know how many users you're talking about. And then, I can go back and look at the piece now, but you know, Apple and Google sort of give roughly enough numbers that you can get some sort of sense of what's going on. And it looks like the rate of download per user on Android is now roughly the same as the download per user on iOS. And it looks like the amount spent in the App Store is roughly double on iOS what it is on Android. A year ago, it was four times. Now it looks like it's roughly double. There's more volume, and that volume is substituting for the amount of revenues that Android is getting. That's why it's closing the gap. Yeah, exactly. So, so it looks like, as it looks like, I, I, I now I don't have the piece in front of me, but it mm. looks like spending on iOS and Android is now roughly the same, even though Android has roughly twice as many users. And it looks like the download rate for Android is roughly double the download rate on iOS and it's got double the number of users. So the download rate per user is roughly the same. And the change within that is that Android kept growing and, and iOS stopped growing because Google, Apple gave the same, a number for how much they paid out in the last 12 months and they gave the same number last year's WC. They gave the same, they gave, then they then gave the same number at Christmas and they gave the same number at this year's WC. So either there's a lot of rounding going on in there, or the number of sources of stock growing. Now, the problem with the payment payout number is that you don't is that a lot of that is that is, is is coming from free to play games within app purchase, and of course that number doesn't capture at all spending within apps. So it doesn't capture Uber or Airbnb or Amazon or anything else. I mean, if you buy something within an app and you're not using your iTunes account, it's not in Apple or Google's number, and so there's sort of slightly opaque what that really says to you. I mean, there's a sort of deeper point here, which is if you look at anybody's metrics tablet, then you see the iPad with something like three quarters of usage, even in countries where Android is dominant in phones. And if you look at any company's metrics on smartphone, then again, they will be iPhone then, that they may have the same number of iPhone and Android users. They may now have more Android users, but the iPhone users still work 50%, 100%, 200% more. And there's a big self-deception effect going on within that, that the people who want to do certain things who behave in certain ways are more likely to buy iPhones. So my pen ultimate question is the following. So you, ha- you have an article on search discovery and marketing. So the analogy yeah. of having Yahoo directory is pretty similar to the App Store of today in terms of Google Play and iTunes App Store. And then what is subsequently yeah. happening is that you have a lot of content in the web so you're starting to have web services that deal with like Pinterest and Product Hunt where people started to solve the discovery problem with curation. I mean, it's similar to musicians, right? 
in the days where we have we got curations in the form of record labels, right? They scout out the best yes. artists. What do you see as the curation in the digital age that will lead to companies that might end up becoming gatekeepers that will suffocate the industry again? I mean, it's like kind of like unbundling, bundling now. There is like the discovery has gone wild and now curation is coming back. So there's a sort of fundamental problem here, which is that there's more stuff that you might like than you can possibly look at or see or know about. And, you know, if I was to ask Google, what is a good hotel in Truckee in Lake Tahoe? Mm. It can tell me an answer to that. It can give me five hotels. But if I ask Google, what book should I read next? That's not actually a search. That's not a good search query. And it's not because Google doesn't know what else I've read. It's just that's not a question that you can answer, at least not with that, and certainly not with the kind of information that Google has. And arguably, you can't answer it at all. If you were to say, you know, what lamp, what kind of, I need to buy a new lamp for my home. What lamp would I like? You know, those are not good search questions. And historically, the way that those kinds of questions got answered is that there was a physical cost constraint on how big a store would be, and where, what the rent, what was the paying for rent, and how big a magazine was, and how much it cost to be for magazine. And so you had this big cost layer that had a kind of a forcing function that said that only the kind of the good stuff got, the stuff that you would like got shown to you in certain ways, or you would buy certain magazines or something. And the internet removed all of those constraints, and so it made it possible on the one hand, search meant that you could find anything that you'd ever heard of. But on the other hand, the fact that there was now effectively internet stuff meant that there was now completely impossible to know. It was impossible for you to have heard of it. So you, if you have heard of something, you can find it. But how do you hear, how do you hear about it? I don't think we, we, and we kind of, we, the place that we started on in the internet was with Yahoo, which would actually give you a list. And so here are all the 45 sites about you know, modern interior design. And we read those, and that's it. The problem is now there's a million because of Tumblr and Pinterest and everything else. So you can't browse through that list. So the Yahoo directory keeps, I think, 3.2 million sites. And, you know, it reaches the point that you can't browse it. And, of course, the App Store is exactly the same. It's a hierarchical, browsable directory of every app that there is. But there's a million apps in that. You can't browse. So how do you find things? But the thing that follows Yahoo was Google. But what Google did was change the problem or relocate the problem. So instead of it saying, and, and so of course, no, what Google does is you can find anything if you know what you want, but you have to know what you want first. And so where do you go to find out what you want? That's not something that Google can answer for you. And it's also, incidentally, not something that Amazon can answer for you. So I kind of see Amazon and Google as these sort of essentially passive businesses, passive products that sit at the end of the funnel waiting for you to work the way down the funnel to work out what you want. And then you go to Amazon or you go to Google and you ask for it and they tell you where it works, where you can get it. But you can work out what you want first. And so sort of in the absence of a sort of a HAL 9000 style true AI that genuinely can answer that question and that knows everything that there is to know and understands the question and can answer it, no one has yet. We may not have in our lifetime. Somewhere you need to put people back into that mix. But as soon as you start doing that, then you have a scaling problem. You know, you have the Yahoo problem. Basically, you have this trade-off. You can have a list of absolutely everything, but you can't browse it. Or you can have a list of 10 things, but you've got to find the list. But you can't have, you could argue almost by definition, it's impossible to have a perfect recommendation to every single person in one place all at the same time, because you'd never be able to find a certain recommendation within all of those other recommendations. I mean, the, the, the way that I started my, my, my post was very, 
Well, that's the European Renaissance, the Dutch Renaissance, yeah, that's right. Erasmus, who lived in the 15th century, just when Christmas was starting to appear in Europe. And it is said about him that he was the last man who had read every book at the time, and any other European book. And, and it was that time, it was probably possible to have read every book. Just as, you know, there was a point in time in India, and there was a point in time in China when it was possible to have read everything. And clearly, you reach a point where there wasn't, there was so much. And sometime afterwards, you reach a point where the last man who had heard of every book that there was. Mm. And we are now sort of at that point for everything. So there is this fundamental question, well, how do you want to be lost? The joke that I use is this writing joke, communist joke, that a man goes into a shop and says, you don't have any sausage, do you? And they say, no, we don't have any fish, we're a fishmonger, but which is never And it's a kind of a joke about shortage, but it's also kind of a joke about, you know, where is it that you want to be lost? Where do you want to be hard to find? Mm-hmm. You, know, you can be hard to find in Google, just everything we want to know what to search for. Or you can be in an index, you know, a little carefully hand-curated list that here are the 10 places that you should go to in this city, or the 10 rooms you should buy. But how do you find that list? I see. The description of the place is really a description of the problem, rather mm. than an rather than a solution. <laughs> or, a suggestion that there, or a suggestion that there is no solution. So, Benedict, that comes to my last question. Where do my audience find you? Um, everywhere. So, well, my parents had great foresight, giving me a name that's easy to Google. So, I'm Benedict, there are only four Benedict Evans's on earth that I know of. Um, <laughs> so, I have a website, which is at ben-evans.com. And I talk a lot about the industry and post a lot of information on Twitter, uh, Benedict Evans. And then I also do a weekly newsletter, which is really my notebook for the week. So, it's all the interesting things that I've seen, not all the news, but all the stuff I thought was interesting and why I thought it was interesting and what I thought about it, which I do every Sunday, which you can also sign up to from my website. That now has about 75,000 subscribers. I would be able to tell you that you have two lady fans in Singapore. Uh, one's my wife who reads your newsletter, and the other one is Christine Laura who organized the local tech events. And she asked specifically okay. asked me to tell you that on the show. And she was on my show too. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and definitely, ben- Benedict, thank you so much for coming on to uh, Analyze Asia. And I hope to speak to you again. Sure, thank you. Um, I'm glad to, I've always enjoyed listening to the podcast and I look forward to hearing how I found it.